Good morning to each of you. I invite you to turn with me in God's Word to Romans chapter 12. Again, that is Romans chapter 12. We aren't going to look at the whole chapter, but a small portion. I, however, would like to read the chapter in its entirety, just to make sure we're following uh, the author's, Paul's thought flow from beginning to end. And so please follow along as I read publicly now from God's Word, and I encourage you to listen closely to what the Spirit says through this human author to God's people. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, by way of reminder, as a matter of fact, I'm going back over a year. By way of reminder, in Romans chapter 5, uh, Paul throws out a miraculous statement one, I trust, is the object of your meditation, our meditation, on a regular basis. It's found in the eighth verse of Romans 5. It's simply this. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us. Now, many of us would have memorized that verse as boys, as girls. God shows, he demonstrates, he manifests, he puts it out there. What? His love for us. How? In that while we were still sinners, Christ, his beloved son, gave himself up, died for us. His name is love. His nature is love. All his actions and expressions and words are love. He preached and practiced love. He lived in love. He served in love. He died for love. It was love that walked in our flesh. It was love that took our infirmities. It was love that gave sight to the blind and life to the dead. It was love that was rejected, belittled, and scorned. It was love that was in a bloody agony in the garden. It was love that was pierced with thorns and nails. It was love that left a glorious crown to climb a shameful cross. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now here's a question. What's our response? What's our response? We need a therefore moment, don't we? And Paul gives it to us right there at the outset of the 12th chapter, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. I appeal to you on the basis of the gospel. I appeal to you on the basis of what it means to be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I appeal to you on the basis of this great, unrivaled, unimaginable, really, in the final analysis, manifestation, demonstration of the love of God for sinners in the putting forth of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation in his blood to make atonement for us. What is our response? It's twofold. In the very first verse, what does Paul emphasize? We present what? A consecrated body. Our second response is what? Verse 2. We pursue a renewed mind. That is our reasonable worship. That is our sensible service. That is our logical response to such love in the face of such overwhelming love. It is to present my body my entire being, every fiber, what makes me tick, it is to present it all as a consecrated offering. And it is not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal, the renewing of my mind. Well, what does that exactly look like? What does a consecrated body, verse 1, and what does a renewed mind, verse 2, look like? All Paul does from the third verse 
right through to the seventh verse of chapter 15, is give us a picture. He paints a portrait of a consecrated body of a renewed mind. And he shows us that such a thing, such a life will be evident, first of all, in how we relate to ourselves. That's verses 3 through 8. It'll be manifested, secondly, in how we relate to other believers. That's verses 9 through 16. It will be manifested, thirdly, in how we relate to our enemies. That's verses 17 through 21. It will be manifested, moreover, in how we relate to our rulers, our governors, our officials. That's the first seven verses of chapter 13. A consecrated body, a renewed mind, these things will also be shown forth in how we relate to unbelievers. Verses 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 13, how we relate to our desires, that self-focus which plagues each and every one of us. That's coming in verses 11 through 14. And then lastly, a consecrated body and a renewed mind will be demonstrated in how we relate to our own opinions. Chapter 14, verse 1, right through to chapter 15, verse 7, it's a biggie. There you have it, the outline. It all builds on those twin pillars. Verse 1, a consecrated body. Verse 2, a renewed mind. What does it look like? We looked at the first manifestation last Lord's Day. It influences how we relate to ourselves. We can sum it up with that phrase Paul uses in the third verse. We exercise sober judgment. We think with sober judgment. In the light or according to the measure of faith, that is the meter, the metron, the standard of faith that God has assigned to us. That is the Word of God. We see in the Word of God exactly who we are. Yes, created in the image of God. Yes, that means human dignity and worth and value. But that image corrupted and overrun and defaced by sin. We are sinners saved by grace. Oh, sober judgment. Sobriety, opposite of what? Drunkenness. Someone who is drunk isn't thinking clearly. Someone who is drunk doesn't have control over his faculties. Someone who is sensible exercises self-control and has a very biblical, healthy self-perception of who he is, who she is as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is then shown in what? Sober judgment in relation to church unity. There is but one body, verse 4. Sober judgment in relation to church diversity. In that one body, there are many members, and we do not all beat to the same beat of the same drum, do we? We all tick and are wired. We, we, we're wired in different ways, and we each have different functions. And thirdly, that sober judgment will be seen in our attitude toward church ministry. In a word, we will get busy. Sixth verse. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Put them to use. And he rhymes off seven precious gifts which are present among God's people. We don't all have them, all of them, but I guarantee you this, you have at least one. And if we're exercising sober judgment, it means we are exercising that gift in the midst of God's people, our context. That means Grace Community Church. Nowhere else, Grace Community Church. That I'm using that gift 
exercising sober judgment, using that gift so that I might be used by God's spirit for the well-being, spiritual well-being and edification of others. That's the first manifestation. We come now to today's text, the second manifestation, how we relate to believers. It begins in the ninth verse and goes all the way through more or less to the end of the 16th verse. How does Paul begin this section? It's with a commandment right there at the outset of the ninth verse. Let love be genuine. Genuine. It's a fascinating word. I don't want to bore you with, with the Greek, but it's anupocritus, unhypocritical. Anupocritus, do you hear it? Hypocritical. Do you know what the word originally meant way back in Roman Greek times? It meant without a mask. That's what the word means. Without a mask. What does that have to do with anything? Well, back in that day, going back 2,000 years, you think of those ancient Greek drama plays where actors, you never saw their faces. They wore masks. And the mask reflected the emotion of the character they were playing. And so the mask might have had a big smiley face, but the actor himself maybe had a really bad day and was crying behind the mask, right? Or the mask might have been angry or bitter or something like that. But in actual fact, the actor might have been very happy. So the mask was no reflection of the individual's real state. And so this idea without a mask, this idea of not being hypocritical, this idea of being sincere, the idea of being genuine, or the phrase we like to use today, what you see is what you get. There's no pretense. There's no pretending. There are no masks. This love is genuine. And immediately Paul qualifies it. Same verse. Two qualifiers. First one. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So here you go. What does genuine love look like? Number one, genuine love hates. Yes, you heard me correctly. Genuine love hates. That's right out of the verse, isn't it? I'm not, obviously not making that up. It's what he says. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Genuine love hates. And secondly, genuine love holds, grasps, grips. Now, I want us to work through this. It will bring us back eventually to the remainder of the verses we're going to consider. I want to work through this asking six questions so that we're really exercising our mental faculties here, understanding what Paul is saying, what this means and how it applies to us. The first question is this, how do we know the difference between good and evil? Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. He's already answered the question, where? Back in verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so as I study the word of God, what do I discover? The will of God. And as I discover the will of God, I learn to discern what? The difference between 
good and evil. There is only one standard for discerning between good and evil. It is God's standard, God's will, as revealed, declared in God's word. Second question is this. What does it mean to hate evil? Abhor. It's a strong word, isn't it? Abhor. What is evil? And I, I do this with some... Uh, cautiously, I do. But um, really just pressed home on me yesterday. You look at Paris, right? And look at what has happened in Paris. Okay. We get a little hot and bothered about that, don't we? So we should. So we should. We would be less than human if we could witness something like that hear something like that, and not react with what? Repugnance. Repugnance. Dare I say, hatred for the evil that has been perpetrated. Abhor what is evil. Now, where I'm going with this is as follows. Please hear these words carefully. I took the time to take a pen and write them down because I wanted, oh, I want preciseness near, and here it is. Here it is, please. The most dangerous threat to us, and we need to grasp this, the most dangerous threat to us isn't the sin in this world. The most dangerous threat to us isn't ISIS. The most dangerous threat to us is not geopolitical instability. The most dangerous threat to us isn't the sin in this world, but the sin in our own hearts. Do we hate it? Do we abhor it with the same intensity that we abhor things that are committed or done externally to us? I know, I, I'm not minimizing what has happened. Not, if you think I am, then you're completely misunderstanding what I'm saying. I'm speaking in categories here. Yes, what has happened, we should be upset over it. We should be concerned over it. What I want us to do, though, is take that animosity that we feel and understand and recognize that there is actually a far greater threat to each and every one of us, and it is the sin that dwells within our own hearts. And to make that the object of our enmity, the object of our hostility, there is a far greater reality than terrorism. There's a far greater reality than what has just happened in Paris. There is a far greater reality to the threat of insecurity in our own country. There is a far greater reality than elections that are coming next year. The reality is this. There is a place called heaven and there is a place called hell. And there is something far worse, far worse than anything this world experiences at present. And it is simply this. It is to fall into the hands of an angry God. That is the ultimate reality. And to understand how offensive sin, my sin, is to this God. Well, then I'm beginning to enter into what Paul is commanding of each and every one of us here in this verse. Is that we abhor such evil. 
as a necessary aspect of what it means to love one another with genuine, sincere love. The third question is this. What does it mean to hold what is good or hold to what is good? The verb means to glue together, cement together. It's the same word used in Matthew 19. A man shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So it is to cling to it. It is to hold on to the good for all we're worth. Fourth question is this. Why is this so difficult? Why is this difficult to do? Why is, is it difficult to abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good? There are a number of reasons. One of the chief reasons is our own struggle with exercising sober judgment. It takes us all, all the way back to the third verse. It's not where I want to go right now. I want to posit two other reasons why it is so difficult to do this. Hold to what is good while hating the evil. The first is this, on a personal level. Our feelings distort our view of good and evil. And as a result, we are tempted to give people what creates emotional joy rather than spiritual maturity. That's a real temptation on a personal level. Hear it again. Our feelings distort our view of good and evil. And as a result, we are tempted to give people what creates emotional joy. Just want them to be happy rather than spiritual maturity. Second reason is this. It's difficult on a societal level. Why? Because by and large today, People out there, our society, think love involves collapsing the distinction between good and evil. And so we, on a personal level, we have this great pressure. On a societal level, we have this great pressure. And this idea that genuine love actually involves these two things, hating and holding, it's difficult for us to reconcile this and to understand it because even on a personal level, we struggle with it. And certainly our society struggles with it in this day in which the word tolerance has been absolutely misused. To mean what? To basically give credence to or support, or encouragement, or unqualified support for what? Sin, evil. This distinction is collapsed, and the expectation is that to support that or encourage that is an expression of love. To oppose it is what? An expression of intolerance. And so we get this message all the time. Therefore, it's extremely difficult to put the ninth verse into practice. The fifth question is this, though. Why is this so desperately needed? Why is this verse, love, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, why is it so desperately needed today? Let me give you three reasons, three spheres. The first, just building on what I just said, on a societal level, how important this is to be so clear on this issue. As a Christian, as we take stands on moral issues in our society, we have been told, we're being told, and it will only increase. What is the message we will hear? To take a stand on that is issue is intolerance. To introduce God's will into the equation, well, that's just, being, that, that's just bigotry. To, to actually dis differentiate between right and wrong and dare label someone's life choices or lifestyle choices wrong, sinful in the eyes of God, well, that just means you're closed-minded. That, that is the message we're getting today. But how important for us to go back to the ninth verse and understand, no, 
when we actually exercise discernment in discerning between good and evil in light of Scripture and proclaim clearly that distinction and our own abhorrence of what is evil, that is a manifestation of genuine love. That's a tough sell in the society in which we live. My friends, that's a tough sell even within the church, which brings me to the second sphere of influence. Uh, we need to hear this and apply this verse in the context of the church. Let's imagine, God forbid, and have mercy on us. Let's imagine next week it becomes known that uh, someone, uh, I don't know, someone here has decided to go live with their girlfriend, boyfriend, or someone has engaged in an adulterous relationship, and it becomes public. And we, uh, you know, Brian and I confront them or something, and uh, they dig their heels in not listening, and uh, don't think it's a bad thing, don't have a problem with it, and uh, won't listen, won't respond, won't repent. What do we do? How do we love them? How do we love them, genuinely love them at that moment? We get the rest of the elders together, that's what we do, and we talk it over. What are we going to do? How are we going to proceed? And we try another visit and uh, confront them with their sin. And their stubbornness, an unwillingness to repent. Then what do we do? At a members meeting, we let you know about it. Because we love that person, genuinely love them. And we love them by abhorring what is evil and wanting what is best for them. The will of God as revealed in the word of God. That's not being hateful. It's not being spiteful. It's not being intolerant. It's not being judgmental. It's called being a Christian. Is what it is. And then the people of God begin to rebuke that individual calling to repentance. And they continue to dig their heels in. And there's no repentance. This goes on for some months. Then what do we do? We love them genuinely. Genuinely love them. How? How? By ending their membership in this church. And by disassociating ourselves from them. Oh, we need to hear that in the church. How many churches actually do that? How many churches actually genuinely love their people enough to confront them when they are wrong? When, we're, when we've adopted and living in sinful behavior, when we are doing something that is so detrimental to our own lives, so dishonoring to God, and so detrimental to the gospel, genuine love is demonstrated in an abhorrence of sin toward sin, toward evil, how we need to hear that in the church and how we need to hear it and apply it in the context of our own home. Here's the third sphere. You have the societal, you have the church, the ecclesiastical, now you have the familial, the family. Um, here is an issue, such confusion that does trouble many families and uh, creates a number of problems. Let me put it to you by way of a phrase and try to apply it then pastorally and do it as quickly as I can. Here it is. I'll do anything as long as the person loves me. Sounds good, doesn't it? Looks good on paper. Um, I'll do anything as long as the person loves me. For many parents, that becomes the goal of parenting, uh, especially when it comes to teenagers, especially when it comes to that 18, 19-year-old who is just simply belligerent in the home and uh, rebelling. 
and wants nothing to do with mom and dad, wants nothing to do with the church, doing whatever they, he, she think, you know, wants to do, and basically shaking a fist at God and will no longer submit to, to authority. I've heard it on a number of occasions, well, well I, uh, I'll do anything as long as the person loves me. And, and that becomes the golden rule for the governance of the home. Problem with that phrase is this, I'll do anything as long as the person loves me. The mentality has actually turned that individual's love into something more important than the actual individual. I'll do anything as long as that person loves me. I'll do anything as long as I can maintain a measure of peace, sanity. I'll do anything and give in on anything as long as I can instill and reintroduce some sort of harmony. When we're thinking like that, what are we actually doing? We are elevating a condition above what is actually in the best interest of the individual, and we are actually demonstrating that we have our own interests primarily in view. My desire for stability, my desire for harmony, my desire just to be loved, to have some kind of relationship. Oh, the need for wisdom in implementing a verse like this, even in the context of the home, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is what is good. This is deeply pastoral. It is deeply practical. It brings us to a sixth question, which is going to help us move on in the text. Here it is. Okay, this genuine love. Okay, I get the idea. You've given me the two qualifiers. I want more specifics as I wrestle with exactly what does it look like. And beginning in verse 10, especially in the context of the church, other believers. Beginning in verse 10, going as far as verse 16. I don't want to mislead you. The cut there isn't neat and dry, but that's as far as we're going to go, just so that we can get our minds around sections and not be too overwhelmed. You go through verses 10 through 16, and we discover exactly what this genuine love, love within the church, looks like. And basically, simply put, Paul gives us 10 marks, 10 marks, 10 characteristics. I'm going to go through five with you now and keep five for next Lord's Day. Here they are. We can go through these pretty quickly. Number one, the first mark is brotherly affection. Verse 10, love one another. I don't have much of imagination, do I? With brotherly affection. The Greek is the word what? Come on now. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. You've probably heard it. Some of us might even like to think it. Well, I need to love the person, but I don't necessarily need to like them. Really? Love one another with brotherly affection. It is that kind of affection, nice thoughts, pleasant feelings in the context of a family relationship. Yes, there might be disagreement. Yes, at times in the context of, of a family, there can be strong disagreement, but underlying it all, there is this brotherly love, this affection one for another. How do we cultivate such a thing? Extremely important. Here they are quickly. Number one, it goes back to verse three. We need to think with sober judgment. If I'm going to love someone with brotherly affection... And uh, I find it difficult to do so. 
for whatever reason, you fill in the blank. You probably won't have much trouble doing so. But uh, I, I'm supposed to love this person with brotherly affection. How can I do this? Number one, we need to exercise sober judgment. It goes back to the third verse. In other words, we need to take a good look in the mirror as to who we are. You know, my friend, you're no prize. Neither am I. Right? Well, we kind of think we are. But uh, no, we are sinners saved by grace. Oh, some sober judgment. Secondly, we need to see others as God sees them. Other Christians. How does he see them? Children. His beloved. The apple of his eye. Of, of such worth that his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, purchased them through his shed blood. Thirdly, we need to focus on the positive rather than the negative. The glass isn't half empty. It's half full. Figure out why. When it comes to that brother, when it comes to that sister, search for the positive. Search for the positive. And focus on the positive. Celebrate the positive. And thank God for the positive. The second mark of genuine love is this, preferential treatment. Middle of verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Paul gives us a good commentary on this text in Philippians chapter 2. He writes, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Really? In other words, I'm supposed to look at my fellow believers here at Grace Community Church as being of greater value than me. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. He builds on it. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Outdo one another in showing honor. We're to prefer to serve others rather than be served by them. We're to give our attention to how we can help others rather than be helped by them. We are to expend our energy to edify others rather than be edified by them. Again, that is the significance of, and please remember, the commandment in verse 10. Outdo one another in showing honor, preferential treatment. The third mark is this. It brings us into the 11th verse. Fervent service. Three little phrases here, but we're putting them all together. Do not be slothful in zeal. Don't be lazy. Do not be slothful in zeal. Here's what I want you to be. Fervent in spirit. Fervent. It actually means to boil over. Right? You put the kettle on the stove top and you put it on to maximum. And within a minute, what's happening? The water is boiling up. If you put too much water in that kettle, what's going to happen? It's actually going to begin to spew out of boil over, pour over out of that kettle. That's the idea here. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Doing what? Serving others. No. Understand this. Serve the Lord. We serve others as an expression of what it means to serve God. We are serving God, and by serving God, we do so in, yes, serving others. But the priority here is essential. I don't serve others for their sake. I'm serving others for the Lord's sake. And how am I to do it? I'm not to be lazy, slothful in zeal. 
but I'm to bubble, boil over, being fervent in spirit. We have a problem. I've struggled with this problem. I'm sure we all struggle with this problem. It's simply this. We tend to do only what's necessary to get by. Some of us went through school like that. Dare I say some of us are still going through school like that. We tend to do only what is just enough to get by. Some of us approach the job like that. What's the bare minimum I can do to collect my salary at the end of the week and get on to what I really enjoy? That kind of attitude, right? We do just enough, only what is necessary to get by. Oh, come on now. Some, some of us approach our marriages and families like that. Just enough to get by. And dare I say, some of us approach Grace Community Church like that. What's the bare minimum I need to do? Just to get by. No, 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 no. Do not be slothful. These are commands of the Lord, my friends. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. You know, you apply, apply it in the wider context. You go back to verses 6, 7, and 8, and you think of those seven spiritual gifts. And how this verse, this particular commandment, this idea of fervent service applies in the context to those seven gifts. Oh, the one who prophesies, that's the sixth verse, does so faithfully and does so diligently. If you're going to prophesy, if you're going to speak according to God's word, and you're going to speak God's word into someone else's life, A, you better know God's word, right? We better have a little biblical wisdom going on. B, there better be a little consistency in our own lives so that it's, you know, it simply is we don't fall prey to the accusation of being a hypocrite. Third, we need to know what's going on in other people's lives. Four, we need to be praying and seeking for opportunities to be used of the Lord to speak truth whether it be by way of encouragement or way of correction into the lives of others. Oh, that's being fervent in service. You build on it. The one who serves, as at the start of seventh verse, does so joyfully to the end, right? I don't sign up tomorrow, back out the next day, because something better came along. No, 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 no. I put my shoulder to it, and I'm in there to the end. It is serving fervently, diligently. The one who teaches doesn't prepare his lessons 10 minutes beforehand. The preacher doesn't collect a few thoughts on Saturday evening and then offer them up to his people, does he? Oh, I had a seminary professor. Maybe I've told you this before. It's worth telling again. I had a seminary professor who just, you know, he just caught us off guard, laid into us one class, and we hadn't done anything. His problem was this. He had a blog. He was a full-time ministry as well. He had a blog. And he just got all excited, red in the face. And he said, you know when, you know when I, I, I noticed the greatest traffic to my blog? Do you know when it is? Saturday evening around 9 o'clock. You know who it is? It's other pastors searching for something to say on Sunday morning. That's what it is. No, the one who teaches, whether it's preaching or in Sunday school or one-on-one -on -one or in care group or whatever it is, there is zeal, there is fervency, there is time put into it. And please understand the time to put, that is put into it is actually teachers saying to those whom they're teaching, I love you. 
Because they are expending themselves in preparing diligently. You think of the one who exhorts, the one who comes alongside to encourage. The one who exhorts comes alongside people for the long haul. They're not there just in the good times. They're with you in the bad times. They're tenacious, really. They won't let go, and neither will they go away. They're there. And they want to be used of the Lord to encourage others. The one who gives is intentional and thoughtful. The one who leads is driven by God's glory among God's people. And the one who shows mercy, compassion, knows absolutely nothing of half measures. They're all in. Isn't that what Paul's saying in the 11th verse? I think that's a reasonable point of application. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And when you do, you're telling people just how much you love them. You are demonstrating genuine, sincere, unhypocritical love. Fourth mark is this, joyful anticipation. Twelfth verse now, simple commandment right at the outset. Rejoice in hope. Hope. If anything is in short supply today, it is hope. We live in an increasingly pessimistic society, world. One author has written, there is a deadly plague of negativity that is infecting our entire culture, summed up in the following tombstone inscription. I was not. I became I am not, I care not. Pessimism, cynicism, unhappiness, bitterness, oh, so prevalent today in the day in which we live. Rejoice in hope. We rejoice, Paul says, you go all the way back to the fifth chapter again, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We understand that, yes, we live here in a fallen world, and living here in a fallen world, we suffer, experience suffering. Living here in a fallen world, we experience grief, pain. Yes, we do, sorrow. Living here in a fallen world, we witness what has just happened in Paris, what's going on around the world, at times what happens in our own backyard. These things trouble us. We do not go through life with blinders on, right? We don't have our heads in the sand. We're realists. We take a good look around and understand precisely what is going on. And yes, it causes great grief. But in the midst of that, we understand what? That we have a completely different perspective than the one this world offers. We understand we already belong to a new creation. We get it. Christ already reigns over a new creation. He has already established it at his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation to the right hand of his Father. We are simply waiting now for what? The consummation of what was inaugurated at his first advent. We're simply waiting for him to come back. And we're waiting for the renovation of the entire cosmos. We are waiting for that great and glorious resurrection. We are waiting for the renovation, the complete, final, perfect renewal of our beings, body and soul, in the likeness of Christ. And the scriptures tell us we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. And so we rejoice, joyful anticipation. Now, here's a good question for you. I hope you're thinking already. What has that got to do with genuine love? 
I, I, I can't build the bridge. Let me build it for you. It's very simple. Joyful anticipation is contagious. That's it. Joyful anticipation is contagious. No one likes being around a prickly pear, right? It's the way we're wired. No one likes the negativity. No one benefits spiritually from the ongoing perpetual pessimism, right? Yes, we're realists. We are. And we weep with those who weep. We struggle with those who struggle. We enter into the pain of those who are in pain. Yes, we do. And in the midst of it all, we breathe life into the darkness. How? By rejoicing in hope. A confident expectation that there is something else coming. Something of such magnitude that will make this present life look like the proverbial drop in an ocean. We take that future certainty and we make it a present reality daily. And my tears are mingled with celebration. My pain and my suffering and my anguish and my discouragement, all of these things are still colored with what? Irrepressible joy. Why? Because I have a right perspective on things. I see exactly God's plan of redemption as it has been unfolding from the garden to the second return coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. I know exactly where I fit in that great plan of redemption. And I have fixed my hope on an absolute certainty of what is going to transpire in that glorious day in the future. That is a contagious person to be around. And you know, living like that is a way to love someone genuinely. It rubs off on people, doesn't it? I go looking for people like that because I know I'm not particularly like that. I go looking for people like that. I need to be around people like that and have it rub off on me. That joy, that joyful anticipation. Here's the fifth mark, patient suffering. The last one we're going to look at, still in the 12th verse, second statement, be patient in tribulation. The word tribulation, you go back to the original, this is quite illuminating, it means pressing. To be pressed down, pressed down. Just the weight upon your shoulders. Something you can barely lift up yourself, something you cannot, can't rid yourself of. Something you can't escape from. Circumstances that are beyond your power to change. And there is, there is no light at the end of the tunnel, humanly speaking, in the here and now. And the pressure just builds and builds and builds. What's the commandment? Be patient. Patient, the idea of what? Unmovable. Someone who will not be moved. Dare I say they're a little bit stubborn. In a good way, they won't be moved. It builds on that first one, right? Rejoicing in hope. You can't do the next one, be patient in tribulation, unless you're rejoicing in hope. And so rejoicing in hope, they are patient. They endure. They are steadfast. That's not minimizing the tribulation. That's not wiping away all the tears. That's not saying, look, the pain and suffering are going to be gone in an instant. No, 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 no. It is rejoicing in hope in the midst of it all. And it is being patient, steadfast in the midst 
of tribulation. There you have it. Five marks. Brotherly affection. Preferential treatment. Fervent service. Joyful anticipation. Patient suffering. Four questions to make sure we're really getting it. As we conclude this morning. Here is question number one. Do we see the importance of nurturing a genuine love for others? I'd say it's pretty important in light of the text. Do we see the importance of nurturing a genuine love for others? Hear this question from John Flavel. Care you not which way things go with the people of God so long as your own affairs prosper and all things are well with you? Here it is again. Care you not which way things go with the people of God, people you are one with here at Grace Community Church, so long as your own affairs prosper and are all things are well with you. Oh, do we see the importance of nurturing a genuine love for others? It is the fruit of what? A consecrated body. A renewed mind. Second question is this. Do we see the importance of cultivating an active spirituality? An active spirituality. We hear people talk today about sanctification in terms which are passive. Let go, let God. I don't know how you adopt, hold, defend that kind of thinking. In light of scripture, in light of this text in particular in which Paul rhymes off a series of commandments. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Oh, an active spirituality. That is not legalism. That is the obedience of faith. That is the gospel in action is what it is. Do we see the importance of cultivating an active spirituality? That is, in actually putting into practice what God's word commands, demands, of us. Here's the third question. Do we see the importance of renewing our minds? It's all linked. It's all connected. Go back to the second verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we renew our minds? We renew our minds as we immerse ourselves in the Word of God. In particular, we immerse ourselves in the context of the first 11 chapters. And what do we discover in the first 11 chapters? We discover God's abounding mercies toward His people. And we act according to those mercies. We do all this. Everything's Paul saying from 12.1 all the way through into the middle of chapter 15. We do all this because of what Christ has done for us. Never reverse the order. We're not trying to earn anything here. We're not trying to score brownie points. There are no points to be scored. We're simply overwhelmed by God's grace, love, mercy toward us in Christ Jesus that we respond in the only reasonable fashion we can. A consecrated body and a renewed mind. In the context of the passage we're looking at today, a genuine love. Here's the fourth and final question. Do we consider, or do we see, rather, the importance of looking to Christ? Do we see the importance of looking to Christ? You want to find the impetus, the motivation, uh, the joy in obeying these commands? Look to the Lord Jesus. A text I, I regularly go back to is John 13. It's among... My favorite passages of Scripture is John 13. 
You know, the, the chapter opens John reminding us that, you know, the Lord Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them too. The end. And what does he do immediately? He washes their feet. It's startling. It is just so startling. I mean, I, I, I can spend hours just thinking about that. Who the Lord Jesus is. The extent of his love that led him to wash Matthew's feet, knowing that Matthew was going to abandon him in just a few hours, right? It's the night he was betrayed. He washed Peter's feet, knowing that Peter was going to deny him. Not once, twice, but three times. He washed Judas's feet, knowing what? He was going to betray him. Do we see the importance of looking to Christ? Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. How does Paul begin, preface, that wonderful description of the humility, selflessness of the Lord Jesus Christ? Here it is with a commandment. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Our Father, we make this text our prayer this day that this would be our attitude that we would have the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ that as Paul tells us we would think with sober judgment and in the light of your mercies to us in Christ by the gospel we might be compelled to live for you demonstrating our love for you in loving your people. We pray that you would begin uh, your work with each and every one of us, that it might be readily apparent, that it might lead to the advancement of your kingdom among us, the extension of your kingdom in this community, and that it might resound for your eternal glory. We seek it from you in Christ's matchless name. Amen.